I hope that your heart is prepared to hear the word this morning. I want you to turn to Matthew uh, chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 29. 29 to the end of the chapter, 29 to 34. I want you to also turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll be needing that at the end. As you're turning there this morning, I want you to know that I was so excited, so eager. Jesus, he has about six days left until the cross. And chapter 21 is the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And uh, I began to get excited about that and and thinking about Passion Week and and just all of the different events and all of the different things that happen. And and I began to get just really jacked up and really excited for it. I started looking immediately at chapter 21, the triumphant uh, entrance into Jerusalem. And I just want to confess this to you. I was going to skip 29 to 34 of the previous chapter, chapter 20. I was just going to skip that because you got these two blind guys, Jesus heals them. And then he's on his way into Jerusalem for the triumphant entry. And I thought to myself, I thought, well, you know, we've seen a couple dozen, you know, dozens of dozens of miracles at this point. You know, what's one more? (laughs) You know, I I, I don't say that to be crass, but I just thought, you know, like we've covered the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. He has the power to heal. We've covered the fact that Jesus, as the Son of God, is compassionate, so he cares about us, so he wants to heal us. We've covered the fact that all sickness and all, dis- all disease is the result of the broken world that we live in. It's a result of sin. Uh, you know, I, and, I, and so just looking at this, I thought to myself, okay, well, you know, a couple of blind guys, they say, Jesus, heal us. He heals him, and then he's on his way into Jerusalem. Let's just focus on the triumphant entry. And uh, as, for, as soon as I made that decision Monday morning, the Spirit just began to kind of poke me a little bit. And uh, I just kind of thought, oh, whatever, you know, it doesn't matter. Like, we're just going to go to chapter 21. We'll just get straight to the good stuff. But, you know, I woke up Tuesday, and it continued to just kind of bug me. I went through, we had the staff meeting Tuesday morning. Uh, Then I got ready for life group Tuesday afternoon, Logan Lake. And then later in the afternoon, I had a few minutes, and I I sat down to look at chapter 21, the triumphant entry. But I just continued to have this kind of nagging feeling like I was missing something. Have Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like the Lord was just trying to say, hey, pay attention, you're missing something critical? So I said, fine. Wednesday morning, I got up bright and early. I went back to chapter 20, verses 29 to 34. I looked at it, and I was like, it's just a couple of blind guys getting healed. You know, again, I wasn't impressed. Um, And I'm ashamed to admit that to you, but I was looking at it, and I was like, I still don't get it. And I, I still felt kind of bugged about it. So I went through, and I parsed every, normally, when I do my exegetical work in the Greek language, you focus primarily on the verbs. You want to know the verb tenses. You want to look at past, present, future tense. You want to really kind of get a feel for that. Sometimes you'll see an unusual word in the Greek that's not common. You'll want to look that up in a theological dictionary. You want to pick it all apart. I did all of that, and I was still not seeing it. So I went through, and I did the whole thing, where I parsed every word, nouns, adjectives, prepositions, uh, you know, all of it. I looked at the whole thing. And then it suddenly struck me. Verse 32. And stopping, Jesus said to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And I realized that, and I make you this commitment from now on. The Lord spoke to me very powerfully Wednesday afternoon, and I hope he opens your eyes to see it today. Passion Week doesn't start with a triumphant entry. Passion Week starts with two blind guys. And I hope that you will see that because I almost missed it and I 
I'm willing to bet most of us have been missing it too. But to really get it, you have to see this. Before Jesus enters Jerusalem, you need to know that in Jericho, he stopped and he healed some blind guys. We'll read the text. We'll pray. I hope the Lord, I hope that the Lord will open your eyes to see it the way he did me this last week. We'll get into the text afterwards. We'll get to work. Verse 29, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting beside the road. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them. And he said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and they followed him. And then chapter 21, he cruises on into Jerusalem, triumphant entry, he's got the donkey, they lay the stuff on the road and he goes on in and it's the beginning of Passion Week. Let's bow and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see it today, Lord. I, saw, I missed it, and I've missed it for so long, but I see it now. And I only see it because you opened my eyes to see it. Father, I'm reminded once again this week that we, even when it jumps right out at us, even when it's right there staring us in the face, sometimes we see it, but we don't see it. We read it, but we don't really get it, Lord. Father, I pray, God, that you would help us to see exactly what you were doing when you stopped in Jericho on your way to Jerusalem to heal these two blind men. Help us to understand you. Help us to understand your heart, Lord. Help us to be reminded of how much you want a personal relationship with us. And help us, Lord, to desire that as well. We pray, God, your spirit would open our eyes to see this text this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if your family is anything like mine, then road trips are undoubtedly a big deal. In my home, if we're going to be going somewhere, even if it's just like a three-hour jaunt down to, the, down to the lower mainland or whatever, my wife will pack the car. I mean, if it's just a three-hour down, we're there a couple hours and three-hour trip back, we'll be back that same day. She will put my coffee there. She'll have uh, you know, some refreshments there for herself. She'll stock it with drinks for the kiddos to drink. Um, she's got books for the kids to read in the back seat or a, one of those portable, sometimes we'll set up one of those portable DVD players. I mean, she's got it all laid out. She's got Windex in the trunk. She's got uh, an extra jug of oil just in case, some antifreeze, the whole nine yards. She has it all decked out. That's just for a day trip. For me to go through the list of things we pack for like an overnight trip would take too long for the sermon introduction this morning, so I won't go there. But suffice it to say, when we go on a road trip, we want for nothing because of my wife's attention to detail. Now, I like that. I also like to get where it is we're going. And this is kind of where Shanti and I, our gifting sometimes don't really fully complement each other because she likes everybody to have their drink with just the right amount of ice, hot or cold, whichever it might be, and everybody to be satisfied, and we get all topped up on coffee, and I'm the guy that likes to go until the gas tank is empty, okay? I mean, when I hit the road, it's like I'm, I, as the man, I'm driving us there. I'm getting us to where we need to be going, and I'm just pedal down, I'm cruising, okay? So you have your cup of coffee, and then about 20 minutes in, when you haven't even seen the gas gauge move even a little bit, 
Everybody's like, oh, I got to go to the bathroom. And that's where I say, mm-mm, no, no. We got like a whole tank of gas. We got places to go. We got things to do. This is where we will have to rise above our physical limitations and master, <laughs> master our bladder to get where we need to go. It's true. And we've had this happen. We've been married 15 years this year, and we've had this happen. Every time we go on a road trip, we need to stop, and it becomes a negotiation. Let's get to at least one quarter of it. You know, we got a quarter tank left. She's like, how about a half a tank? I'm like, no, let's go for a quarter. And we settle somewhere between a quarter and a half tank. We drive. We get to where we're going. But the truth is, I don't even like to stop for that. I would be just as fine not drinking anything and just going until we can go. My wife will tell you, one time, I actually theorized out loud to her. We were behind uh, one of those tanker trucks that was like taking gasoline to refill a gas station somewhere. And we were coming up on a quarter tank. And I was reflecting on the fact that, you know, you see fighter jets do this all the time, where they just pull up behind the tanker plane and they get refueled in flight. And I was like, what? Why didn't some enterprising soul, you know, like... Steve Jobs, he invented the iPhone. Why couldn't we have like tanker trucks that you could just pull up behind them, fill up without stopping and keep going? And of course, my wife is like, that's, ath- that's anathema, that's heresy, you can't, we have to stop. You know? and we had this whole long conversation. Point is, when we go somewhere, road trip, we're excited to go. She's excited to put drinks in the car. I'm excited to get there. And we're gonna go, 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 go. We got places to go, we got people to see, we got things to do. Jesus is on a road trip here in Matthew. He's, we've come to the end of chapter 20, and he's got some place to go, and he's got something to do, and the place he has to go and the thing he has to do are way, way more critical than anything you and I have ever done or had to do in our lives. The destination he has in mind is critical for all of us. So, here we are, he's about six days away from being crucified. They're somewhere around Jericho. Jericho is about a five-hour walk from Jerusalem. He's going to spend a good chunk of this day walking to Jerusalem. So it's like, okay, boys, let's go. He gets the disciples up. It's bright and early. It's the crack of dawn. You get your Starbucks coffee. You get your Tim Hortons, whatever your particular brand of Java is. You get your Egg McMuffin. Get your sandals on. Get strapped in because we're going. We've got some place to go. We have somewhere we need to be. And it's also even more critical for Jesus because not only do you combine the excitement of a road trip with what he's doing, but you also have to think about it in terms of ripping a Band-Aid off. What he is about to do is extremely challenging. It's extremely difficult. It is going to break him. It is going to cost him his life. When you take a Band-Aid off, do you just kind of rip it a little bit at a time? Like, no, you don't do that. One, One fell swoop. Get it over with, right? Jesus makes a statement in the Gospel of John. He says, I have a baptism with which to be baptized. And oh, that it were already accomplished. He is eager to get this thing over with. So not only does he want to be there, not only is it the excitement of a road trip, not only is he about to enter into Jerusalem for his last week of ministry, but this is what he's been waiting 33 years to do. Out of all of it, out of all the healings, out of all the miracles, out of feeding the 5,000 on multiple occasions, raising people from the dead, out of all of these things, this is the moment he was born for. This is Passion Week, 
And he is ready to get the show on the road. So you get your coffee, you get your egg McMuffin, strap your sandals on, we're rolling. Can't stop for no one, can't stop for nothing. And then two blind men call out. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus is about a five-hour walk. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to get there somewhere early to mid-afternoon. He's going to stop on the outskirts of Jerusalem. He's going to pull some disciples aside as he say, in order for this thing to go down properly, I need a ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. He's going to send them another hour into Jerusalem ahead of him. They're going to get the donkey. They're going to come back. That's going to take two hours. He's going to jump on the donkey. The crowds are going to go ballistic. They're going to cry out, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're going to put their coats on the ground. They're going to be stripping palm branches off of trees. They're going to be throwing that on the ground. He's going to be riding into Jerusalem in style, everybody praising him, the crowd going ballistic because they sense that this guy is the Messiah and they're excited for it. He's going to roll into Jerusalem. It's going to be late. The Gospel of Mark tells us he's going to go into the temple. He's going to make the journey. It's going to become late evening at this point. He's going to go into the temple. He's going to look around. Then they're going to go back outside of the city of Jerusalem, about another 30, 45 minute distance out to this little village where he's going to stay the night. The next morning he's coming back in to cleanse the temple. He's got things to do. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. They cry out. The crowd that is with him, that is going to be laying their stuff on the ground for him to walk on as he rides into Jerusalem, they look at these guys. There's excitement. There's enthusiasm. The crowd, the roads are crammed with uh, with Jews who are making the pilgrimage for Passover. This is the holiday season. There's an exuberance and excitement. These two blind guys are crying out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The way you need to understand these two blind guys is it would be similar to when you pull up to a stoplight and there's a fellow there who is asking for money and he might come up to your car and he might, you know, squeegee your windshield and, and, and put out his hand and ask you to give him money. And, you know, those individuals, they, they're obviously desperate for some cash, but for the most part, when you encounter those individuals, you're a little bit uncomfortable because you've heard all the horror stories Maybe their intentions aren't as innocent. You know, and so you're not sure you want to roll your window down. You regard them with a bit of discomfort. Well, these two guys are kind of like those guys. We're going to Jerusalem. It's Passover season. Jesus is excited. Everybody's motivated. We're rolling. And these two guys say, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. A crowd rebukes them. And the ESV words it rather politically correct. Verse 31, the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. In the original languages, it would be closer to shut up. Don't talk. We don't care. There is a callousness. There is an indifference. Listen, you guys can beg anybody for money anytime you want. We're going places. Now, They don't listen to the crowd. It continues on. They cried out all the more. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, he's going to heal them. But the first thing I want you to see here, these two blind guys, they don't let the crowd dictate to them their ability to come to Christ and to ask for mercy, to ask for healing. 
They refuse to listen to the crowd. The crowd isn't the one that has the answers. The world cannot help them. They've already panhandled to the world. They've already talked to all the doctors. They've already talked to all the physicians. They have heard that this is the Messiah. They say to him, Lord, son of David. There is a clear understanding in their mind that they know who this guy is. The crowd says, be quiet. Don't talk. Shut up. We've got better things to do. They don't listen. They cried out even louder, Lord, Lord, have mercy on us. And that is the first point that I want to bring to your attention this morning. So often, when we approach our relationship with God, when we begin to talk to Him, when we get alone in our prayer closet and we begin to pray, how often do we allow what the world says to dictate to us what we or will not say to the Lord, how we will or will not converse with the Father. A number of years ago, I was in seminary, and I went to chapel service one morning, and there was a guest preacher who was speaking. And the pastor came in, and he did a a sermon on prayer. And one of the comments that he made, and, and again, he had a very compelling point. He exegeted a very powerful text of Scripture. And his whole point was simply this. When we come to the Lord in prayer Basically, we need to be diligent and disciplined to lift up the really big things in life. He says, all too often when we pray, all we really pray for is, you know, I'm sick or, you know, I I have uh, this particular cold or my child isn't doing well in school right now. When we go to the Lord, we need to remember to pray for the important things. We need to pray for our government leaders. We need to pray for the state, the spiritual condition, the state of our country. We need to lift up people we know who are not Christians. We need to be asking the Lord to soften their hearts so that they will see the gospel and they will come to faith. And essentially his whole point was basically we don't need to waste the Lord's time with little trivial things. We don't need to be taking up his time with just me-centered, self-focused kind of stuff. He says, yeah, okay, you got a cold, but you know, there are better things to pray for. And I remember thinking at the time, he exegeted the scriptures powerfully, but I remember thinking at the time, there's something not quite right about that. Look at the text, verse 31. The crowd rebuked them. Listen, you're not important. Whatever your issue is, it doesn't matter. Well, what's their issue? Their issue is that they're blind. It's totally self-focused. They're not asking Jesus here in a couple of verses. They're not going to say, hey, bring about world peace. Which, interestingly enough, if they had asked that, he would have said, on my way to do it. That's not what they're asking for. Heal us, Lord. Heal our blindness. They cry out and they say, Lord, Son of David, Lord, have mercy on us. I want you to look at verse 32. And stopping. Now, if you're reading an English text... You might miss it. This is where we're going to get a little bit technical. You guys know that I'm a grammar nerd. This is what we would call an aorist correlative participle, which most of you are like, I have no idea what you just said. When you understand participles, you need to know that the participle, the action of the participle, a participle is a verbal noun. The action of the verbal noun depends upon the action of the main verb. They cry out, and that's in the present tense. They cry out, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. The fact that the participle is in an aorist tense, which is a snapshot of past action, means that he responds almost before they cry out, have mercy on us. 
This is what you need to understand as you look at these two statements side by side. They say, Lord, Son of David, and it's almost before they get to the part where they say, have mercy on us, Jesus stops and he says, what do you want? The, the way that the ESV words it, it says, and stopping. But the force of this is their cry stops him in his tracks. He's rolling. We don't got time to stop for gas. We don't need to stop and get any more drinks. I've got my Starbucks. I've got my Egg McMuffin. My sandals are polished and everything is shined. We are ready to go. They cry out, Lord, Son of David. And he stops short. The crowd is saying, be quiet. Stop talking. Shut up. We don't care. And as soon as they cry out, Jesus stops. And he turns to them and he says, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do for you? And so the first thing I want you to see is this. Number one, these guys got Jesus' attention on a very small matter, comparatively speaking, with regards to saving the world. It was obviously a big deal for them. But in the grand scheme of things, what they're asking for is a small miracle. And they got his attention. Sometimes we will hear preachers, well-intentioned, who will say, we just need to focus on the big things. We need to intercede for things like our politicians, government leaders, the state of our country, people who are lost who don't know the Lord, and we don't need to occupy the Lord's time or our time talking about the little things. But this passage shows that the Lord was on his way to do a big thing, and he stopped short at, comparatively speaking, what we would call a small request because it was important to him. And so I want to back off of that statement and say, yes, absolutely, we need to go to the Lord, we need to ask for big things, but that's not to say that the little things are not important to him. Both matter to our king. Both matter to him. It's kind of like this in marriage. When you are dating someone, you start to date and the relationship is getting serious, you will talk for hours and hours and hours on end about all the things you want to go and all the things you want to do in your life. You begin to talk about what's important to you and what you hope to accomplish someday before you die. I can remember when Shanti and I were dating. At that time, the Lord had just laid it on my heart that he, he was calling me into pastoral ministry. And so we talk about our dreams for the future, going and being a part of a great church and helping to build a great, a great body of believers. And and what the future might hold for us. Well, sooner or later, you run out of really big, grandiose things to talk about. If you were to ask us today, here we are almost 15 years in, so what do you guys talk about? We'd sort of stare off into the distance for a minute, you know, and say, well, I mean, I, I guess the last time we had a really serious conversation was last night in bed. Oh, yeah, well, what did you say then? Were you talking about all the dreams and the plans you had for your daughters and how you want them to grow up and go on to win the Nobel Peace Prize? Yep, yep. That wasn't a part of our conversation last night. I said, really? Well, what did you guys talk about that was so meaningful? Well, we were laying there in bed and we were both very tired. And one of us, and I don't, we, don't, we, we debated for probably about 10 minutes as to who it was, had left the, the gate on the back deck open. <laughs> and it was swinging in the wind. And it was banging, and that was keeping us awake. And so we were kind of debating on who should be the one to get up out of bed to go close the gate. 
And you laugh, and it's silly. And it wasn't like we were having a heated argument. We were just kind of teasing and playing back and forth. Is that like earth-shattering, we're going to go out and conquer the world kind of conversation? No, it's not. And so for all of us here who are married, you know this to be the truth. When you first get to know a person, it's the big things that occupy so much of your time and attention and conversation. But once you're married, once there's that intimacy there and there's that closeness there, most of the time you just talk about largely trivial things. Did you ever stop to think that that's how it is with the Lord? Does the Lord have grandiose plans for your life? Absolutely. He has huge plans. Should you aspire to do great things for the Lord? Should you aspire to go out and accomplish big goals for the Lord in your life? Absolutely. Does having a relationship with the Lord more often than the big things involve talking about the little things? Absolutely. I still have grandiose conversations with my wife about the future and what we'd like to accomplish, but by and large, the closer we have grown, more often than not, the more trivial and the smaller the things are that occupy our conversation, like closing the gate at 10 o'clock at night. It's like that with the Lord. Sometimes when we draw near to him, we think, well, the Lord is in charge of the universe. He's got an awful lot that he's responsible for, providing for all of humanity, you know, taking care of our every needs, atoning for our sins, trying to work miracles and healings and all this kind of stuff all over the world, trying to take care of people. Surely, if he's going to talk to me about anything, it's only going to be about grandiose things. Not true. Not true at all. The Lord is curious to know about the small stuff. And so when we go on the, and this applies to anything you might read, anything on the internet or anything you might read in a book, everybody will always say, when it comes to your walk with the Lord, there are certain things you should prioritize. There's no doubt that there's some truth to that. But the argument is sometimes made so forcefully that you would sometimes come to the realization, or you, you might be tempted to believe that the only thing that matters to the Lord are the big things. Not true. Lord, son of David, he stops dead in his tracks on his way to save the world, literally, in every sense. And he turns and he says, what do you guys want? Now, the other thing I want to draw your attention to, they say, Lord, will you heal our eyes? Look at verse 33. They said to him, let our eyes be opened. Again, I have theorized out loud, if I've got somewhere to go, you know, why couldn't they just make tanker trucks that would fill my vehicle in route so I would never have to stop? I mean, that would be like the greatest thing ever. If you're Jesus, do you actually have to stop? Or do you suppose Jesus has the capacity just walking down the street, just to be like, bam, miracle over there, bam, miracle over there, bam, miracle over there. And he never, never even has to stop. He can just keep on going and everybody's getting everything they need and he's just rolling on down the street going into Jerusalem. Do you suppose he could do that? Absolutely he could. We all know that he could. And yet when they cry out and they say, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us, the text is clear. He stops. He is Jesus. He already knows what they want. And yet he engages in a personal conversation with them where he asks them, being God, having omniscience, knowing everything, he still asks them, what do you want me to do for you? 
Now think about that for a second. Does Jesus know what they want him to do? Yes, he does. Why does he ask that question? I'm not saying this in an irreverent way in any sense at all, but what's up with that? Why does Jesus ask them to say what it is that they want him to do? And as I was meditating on this, it struck me that as we've gone through all of the miracles through the Gospel of Matthew, as we've looked at all of them, there were instances where he would encounter a servant and the guy saying, my child way back over in Galilee is sick, can you heal him? And he said yes, and he healed him. He didn't actually even have to go and touch the kid. We see that happen, and yet, if you stop to think about it, what was his primary way of doing things? He stopped He engaged in a personal conversation and he physically touched those people whom he was going to heal. This is critical for us. Our Lord could, without stopping, without taking the time to engage us in conversation, our Lord could, without giving a second thought, take care of our every need. And yet that's not, he does it sometimes, but that's not how he operates most of the time. Most of the time, what he does is he stops. He makes personal, direct contact. And he wants you to talk to him, and he will ask you, what do you want? He knows what they want. They know what they want. But there's the conversation that happens as a result of his question. The Lord wants to talk. He wants to touch. He wants to be personal. He doesn't want to be a God that's far away. He wants to be a God that is close at hand. He is a God that is far away, and we think of him sometimes that way, but the truth is he doesn't want us to think of him as far away. He wants us to think of him as our best friend who's right there with us. These these guys say, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Well, what do you want me to do for you? heal us. Well, in what way? Open our eyes that we may see. All right. And he heals them. When we're in our prayer closet, when we're trying to spend time alone with the Lord, sometimes we feel that he's far, far away. Sometimes we feel that his concerns are so great that he probably doesn't think too much about us or worry too much about specifically what's going on right here in our lives. And yet, as he's on his way to Jerusalem to die on the cross, to take on the sins of the world, the thing that grabs his attention is not the immenseness of all humanity, which he is about to die for. The thing that grabs his attention is two blind guys asking for their eyesight. God is absolutely capable of thinking of the great things, focusing on every need of every person all over the world. But in that greatness, in that capacity to do that, he never loses the ability to be focused in right on you to be right there with you, thinking about you, thinking about your needs, concerned for you. The question is not, 
does the Lord have time to listen to me? Does the Lord have time to think about my needs or to spend time hearing from me directly? The question is, do you believe that he really wants to and do you want to spend that time with him? I have found that when I ask people, well, what's the Lord been saying to you in your quiet time? And I know from personal experience, the Lord has lots of things he'd like to say to us. When we get down on our knees, we get out our prayer journal, we begin to reflect on what the text is saying, we begin to ask God for the various needs and requests that we have. There is no doubt that the Lord has many passages of Scripture and many different ways that he wishes to address those things in our life. And yet when I ask people time and again, what has the Lord been saying to you in your personal prayer life, in your personal quiet time, the issue is never, well, the Lord hasn't been saying anything. The question more often than not is this, I just haven't been doing it. I haven't been talking to the Lord. I haven't been spending that personal quiet time with the Lord. I don't get down on my knees regularly and pray. This text shows us that this is why he died. He didn't die on the cross to sort of address the needs of humanity the way that a CEO of a large company might send out a memo in order to help facilitate the smoother functioning of his organization. He died on the cross so that he could know you personally. And I am more firmly convinced of that than ever because here we are Passion Week. He's on his way into Jerusalem and yet two completely insignificant individuals whose names we don't know, who won't show up anywhere else in the Gospels. We know nothing about these guys. They are completely lost to history, and yet they cry out as he's making his way into Jerusalem, Lord, Son of David, and he stops and he heals them, which means that even though he is preoccupied with the greatest things in the history of mankind, he is not so preoccupied that he doesn't want to know you personally, which means you are hindered in your relationship with him, not by him, but by you. He wants to be found by us. He wants to have a conversation with us. We can come to him, and we can ask him for anything. Now, this is where we run into a little bit of a difficulty with this particular text. You got two blind guys. They say, Lord, would you heal our blindness? Done. And so we begin to say, okay, the Lord is there in my closet. He wants to take care of me. He's focused on me individually. He wants to have a direct personal relationship with me. I have this particular need. Lord, would you heal this need? And then sometimes it doesn't happen the way we think it ought to. Sometimes it doesn't happen at all. This is where we come into the difficulty of the text. Say, okay, the Lord is so focused in on me and my needs. Then why wouldn't he just heal or resolve every conflict that I have in my life, why does he not heal sometimes? Why does he not resolve conflicts sometimes? I want you to go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul is having a strong and intimate relationship with Jesus. He's church planting all over the Mediterranean world. As he is church planting, as he is walking with the Lord, verse, chapter 12, verse 3, he's talking about himself in the third person. He makes a statement, this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. 
He's caught up to heaven. He has a vision of paradise. And it amazes him. Verse 5, on behalf of this man I will boast, Paul's talking about himself, on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think of me more than he sees in me or hears of me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, there he tips his hand. Oh, I'm really talking about myself here. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul talks about being afflicted in some way, physically. He says, I was having this walk with the Lord, and I got caught up into heaven. I saw paradise, and it was amazing. It was so great. I can't talk about it. And in order to keep me humble, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, the Lord afflicted me, and he calls it a messenger of, sta- of Satan, some form of a physical infirmity. And Paul says he prayed that God would actually take that away. Verse 8, three times, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. I asked God had a personal conversation with the Lord, engaging him in my quiet time. Father, please take this thing away. Three times I asked, and look at what he says, verse 9. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And look at Paul's response. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul asks, God says no. Did you catch that? Paul asks, God said no. Paul says, Lord, I'm doing great things for you. We're church planting. I know that you've given me this affliction, whatever it is, to keep me humble, and yet, would you please take it away? No, okay. Number two, would you please take it away? No. Okay, number three, three's the charm, right? Would you please take it away? And the response that the Lord gives is this. You don't need to have it taken away. He makes the statement, my grace is sufficient for you. The Lord wants to have a personal relationship with us. Do you know what that is? It's the sweetness and it's the richness of knowing his grace. It's the sweetness and it's the richness of knowing that he takes care of us, that he's always there with us, that he is going to look after us and one way or another, he's going to give us everything we need and he's going to get us to where he needs us to go. Sometimes that doesn't look like what we want it to look like. And when we encounter these difficulties, whether these blind guys on the side of the road or whether Paul here in 1 Corinthians 12. In our judgment, we say we don't want this. We would be better able to do whatever it is we want to do if we didn't have these things. And you know what the Lord says? You would be able to do it better, but you would be doing it apart from me, which is not better at all. Did you catch that? The Lord afflicts the Apostle Paul because the Lord just wants Paul to stay near to him. 
the Lord puts a thorn in his flesh. We don't know exactly what that is, but it's a nuisance. We need the Lord. And he does things in our life specifically to keep us near to him because he wants a relationship with us. That's why he died. Let's bow for a word of prayer.